0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Whole Church Podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Joshua Knoll, here with your other co-host, T.J. Tiberius Juan Blackwell. Hello, hello. Yeah, and um, today we're joined by Dr. Seth Postel, who... um, I'm trying to even think of how to introduce you. Well, he is the author of Reading Moses, Seeing Jesus. Um, You are also the head of the, um, I'm trying to remember the exact name of the college.
1: Yeah, the academic dean of Israel College of the Bible.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I, um, <laughs> I I knew it was in Jerusalem. I knew it was about the Bible, but and my head's mostly still wrapping around your book. There's so much good stuff there that I'm ready to talk about. But
1: And it's actually not in Jerusalem, although you would think that that would be the best place oh, for us okay. to be. We're in Netanya, which is uh, a coastal city near Tel Aviv. Oh, I've seen oh, Netanya on maps before. It's a beautiful place right on the Mediterranean.
0: Yeah. OK. So I, I think what happened was I looked up the time zone because this is 6 p.m. for you. And I was like, where, where is this? And it, it, it's Jerusalem time. And I was like, oh, OK. <laughs> so my brain just, I think, made assumptions like obviously that time doesn't only exist for <laughs> Jerusalem. So <Okay>. my bad.
1: <laughs> no problem. All is well.
0: Yeah, so we have him on today. We're going to be talking about um, Messianic Judaism, um, how it fits into the picture of the whole church, and how do more Jewish believers see Jesus through the lens of the Torah and the Tanakh. Um, we're really excited to talk about all that. But before we do, I always like to review some audience engagement and um, – we, we got a, we got a few good ones I'm actually going to share some a review of our new podcast uh, systematic geekology uh, so you guys might want to check that out um, this review is from mr. squid uh, he says good start to an awesome idea I'm excited for deeper dives into lore and biblical comparisons I would encourage you not to shy away from complex discussions and make sure to fully represent any opposing views. Looking forward to more. Well, uh, Mr. Squid, <laughs> I uh, I really like your username, first off. And also, uh, I'm sure we absolutely will get into some more complex ideas over there. And uh, thank you for your words of encouragement. He left a five-star rating. You guys could always do that for this show or that show. Maybe listen to it first if you do that, though. That, that'd probably be good. Um, <laughs> and uh, that being said, we're going to jump into today's silly question. We always start with a silly question because uh, silliness is... My personal favorite form of unity. It's just hard to argue with people when you're being silly. Um, Today is just a really simple one. What is your least favorite color and why? Um, TJ, would you like to start? I can start. I hate
2: the color orange. I can't stand
0: it. Are you starting because you wanted to steal mine? (laughs) No, it's just... Why do you hate the color orange? I just,
2: I just don't think orange really looks good in most cases. I don't think anyone wakes up and says,
0: "Oh wow, I can't wait to wear my favorite
2: orange shirt." You know,
0: today is Orange Shirt Day, like it's a national holiday. Horrible. Yeah, we're recording September thirtieth. There's a whole reason behind it, but I, I won't get into that. And I don't mean um, to offend anyone. Orange is anyone. also. I just don't like
2: orange. <laughs> I tried to think of every yeah, color uh, I could, and it's the only one where I was like,
0: <laughs> "Yeah, that's bad." Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's currently showing orange on the camera for those listening. Um, <laughs> uh, it is also my least favorite color, but I have a much more, um, I'm just going to say dumb reason for why I don't like it. It happens that most of the college football teams I don't like are orange. You know, you got Clemson, you got Florida Gators, you got Miami, you got Tennessee, Virginia Tech. I offended a ton of people by listing those. I, I Y'all get over it. I just don't like orange teams, it turns out. I don't know why just happens to be a thing. Um, (laughs) Dr. Postel do you have a least favorite color?
1: Well I was going to say my favorite color is orange just to be contentious but (laughs) I decided not to go that route Um, although I do like Holland's uh, national football team their soccer team but but that aside Hmm. that aside I think my least favorite color is red and I think the reason is not red per se but that I grew up a redhead. Now I'm bald, but I'm a redhead. And you put a redhead with a red shirt, and I always felt like I looked like a tomato. So I decided that I don't like red.
0: <laughs> that's fair. That's fair.
1: And here
0: at your favorite church unity podcast, we can have Christian unity with people who like orange. We might just have to go to different. And churches, red. Yeah, you know, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, and red.
3: <laughs> oh
2: man, that's funny. Right. So now that that's out of the way, uh, we can start the real podcast. Uh, one thing we have found to that is really useful for establishing church unity is hearing one another's story. Uh, would you mind telling us how you came to Jesus, came to meet Jesus?
1: Yeah, thanks for asking. So uh, I grew up in a Jewish family in the United States, in New Jersey, and um, <clears throat> grew up in a family where Jesus was actually a bad word. In fact, uh, the only... The, what my dad was actually, he had probably the broadest vocabulary, the broadest range of curse words in the neighborhood. Nobody could curse as good as my dad. And mm. he, when he was really angry, the worst word he could possibly say was Jesus Christ. And, you know, we lost family in the Holocaust on my mom's side. We lost, I think, over 20 family members in Poland and Warsaw. They were from Warsaw. And I guess the assumption was always that that was, that was, it was a Christian country. So Christians did it, Christians. So it was, you know, you know, uh, at the same time, my closest friend was Catholic and I never felt, in fact, they, they loved us and they loved the Jewish people. But Jesus was just sort of something that was just not for us. And in fact, I grew up in an area where on my street, you know, I think there was only two Gentile families. Everybody else was Jewish. The president of the synagogue lived right next to us. And um, my mother, uh, she was actually going to an, a program called Overeaters Anonymous. It's kind of a 12-step program. And she actually met a a Jewish lady who believed in Jesus. Now, in the 12-step, you have to define your higher power. And my mom, uh, you know started to have to deal with her own spirituality. And this Jewish lady started to talk to her about Jesus. And it was at first very offensive to her. But what ended up happening is I think it, it was offensive in one sense, but in another sense, it made her very curious. And she actually started to read the Bible. Now we grew up very secular. I mean, I grew, I grew up reformed. I went to Jewish school once a week. We were very secular home. I knew the prayers. I learned to read Hebrew, although I didn't know what I was reading. I could do the letters and the pointing, but I didn't know what I was reading. So we were very proud to be Jewish, but I didn't quite understand even what that even meant. Okay. Uh-huh. But in the late 70s, my mother actually became a follower of Jesus. She had been wrestling over the over a period of a couple of years and came to the conclusion, based on a reading of the Old Testament, the you know, the, the Tanakh, and and the new testament she couldn't ignore the fact that that Jesus is the messiah somebody actually you know had the gall to put Jesus on our side of the bible and so my mom was the first to come to faith and it created a, a shockwave in the family my father was very angry at my mother and uh, basically threatened her and said don't you dare talk to our son about this and so, for the next several years, my mom prayed for my father, for myself, my sisters um, I have a brother and over the next couple of years, God started to really work in our hearts and we ended up going to a conference of Jewish believers and for whatever reason, this conference just really touched my dad for me i you know i you know it was just kind of. It was fun. I didn't really understand what was going on. But for my dad, he started to actually talk to people about Jesus. And and it was important to him, you know, to talk, to talk to Jewish people who believed in Jesus. And at first he was also a bit put off. But we came home from that conference and my father finally said to my mother, he said, OK, I see that you're I see that, you know, you're Jewish. I see that it's possible to be Jewish and believe in Jesus. Why do you believe in Jesus? And so, um, he said, "Please tell me why." But I don't. I don't want to read the New Testament. I don't want to see the New Testament. And again, part of the stigma that that Jewish people have, and it's very sad, is that because of Christian history and the way that Christians had persecuted Jews in the name of Jesus, the assumption is that the New Testament is an anti-Semitic book. And so a lot of Jewish people aren't even willing to touch the New Testament because of that stigma, my father being one of them. But what ended up happening was my mom read to him Isaiah 53, and he got very offended. He said, I told you I didn't want to hear the New Testament. And my mother said, "Uh, that's on our side of the book. And what ended up happening was um, he was in shock. And God opened his eyes, and within the next couple weeks or month or so, and my father came to faith in Jesus. And so he, he went from a man who uh, really used the name of Jesus as the worst curse word in his vocabulary. Uh, Jesus came to be for my father, the most precious name he knew. And uh, interestingly enough, my father ended up dying on December 25th, 2011. But what's interesting about that was on that day... Uh, it was Christmas and Hanukkah at the same time, which is rare, so that was kind of cool wow and the Jewish funeral director of the funeral was so touched by the funeral <laughs> that he ended up coming to faith <laughs> so <laughs> so for me, what ended up happening was obviously just you know dealing with my own spiritual emptiness. Uh, I realized that you know my my experiences at the Jewish school, the synagogue um, left me empty. Uh, the world certainly left me empty. And I I started really wrestling over my own spirituality and came to a very deep conviction that there was something wrong with me. And and then I started to, you know, I heard the gospel and I realized that, that Jesus was the answer and um, huh. came to faith, uh, started to share my faith with Jewish family members and friends. And the one thing that they kept telling me was, you're, you rely on a Christian translation of the Old Testament. If you, could read the, if you could read the Bible in Hebrew and understand what you were reading, I could read it in Hebrew, I just didn't understand what I was reading, okay. then you would know for sure that, the, that Jesus isn't the Messiah. And so that became my life's calling until this, till this day. Uh, that became my life's calling is to, to understand my faith from the context of the relationship of the New Testament to the Hebrew Bible and to be able to articulate my faith um, on, uh, by looking at and from the Hebrew Bible. So so that's my story. I've been in Israel for uh, 27 years now. <laughs> Met my wife here. My wife actually is, uh, <laughs> she's from Hong Kong and came from a Buddhist family. And she was the first believer wow. in her family. We have three beautiful children. And uh, yeah, here I am living in israel
2: wow that's crazy that's, that's such a long time yeah that's you know yep. that's longer than i've been alive so
1: i'm uh, not I, I guess when you say that you know i it's funny I, I don't feel that old but i guess i guess i am
2: you're not that old you're just definitely older than yeah. me <laughs> uh tj's just that young <laughs> that is true i'm only 22 wow
1: i have a uh, daughter that's that's going to be 21 soon
2: yeah, but uh, so how did that experience lead into you, your decision to write seeing Moses or uh, reading Moses seeing Jesus?
1: Yeah. So here, okay, it's it, it's a really good question, and I would say that that book is really that's been the journey for me over the over the past twenty years. Um, oh reading becoming a follower of Jesus, right? Obviously, I believe that the New Testament is God's word and I don't believe that it's a lesser inspiration than the Old Testament or the Torah. I don't I don't pit the one against the other. And so, uh, you know, I I would read the New Testament and I I had a cognitive dissonance between between some of the statements in the New Testament and my own observations about the Old Testament that really bothered me. One of them was what Jesus said in, in John 5, 46, that if you believed Moses, you'd believe me because Jesus, because Moses wrote about me. And I found that that was a hard statement because he was speaking to the religious leaders even before he had even been resurrected. He hadn't died or resurrected. And he's, he's not saying, you know, he says, I, I'm not going to judge you before the father. It's going to be Moses and it, it and i'm thinking wait a minute I, okay i can see that jesus is the messiah based on isaiah 53 micah chapter 5 you know even psalm 22 but how can jesus actually say that moses is enough and it created in me a kind of a i believed in my heart but could never explain it in my head and the thought of ever even say being invited to a synagogue and being told okay We'll give you the whole day to share your faith, as long as you only use Moses. And I felt like I couldn't do it. And then that was that was when I came across a book that that really changed my life. Um, it's called The Pentateuch's Narrative by John Salhammer. And that was really the first time that I finally could see that a careful reading of the Torah was aligned with what I understood to be true about Jesus in the New Testament. And he really helped me see that the structure of the Torah is very much a an eschatological, a last-day structure. And that, for me, kind of set me, set me on a whole journey. I ended up doing a PhD with him. Now, reading Moses and seeing Jesus, really, the reason that book came about was because We had so many people, you know, I I serve with One for Israel. It's called One for Israel, which is the umbrella of Israel College of the Bible. We do a lot of videos. Maybe you've seen our videos on YouTube. It's their videos in Hebrew and English. We also do Arabic videos, evangelistic videos. And we get lots of people writing us. And one of the biggest questions constantly is the relationship to the law do I have to keep kosher? Should I keep kosher? What about the Sabbath? What about the holidays? And we were, we were also reading a lot of uh, emails and, and text messages that were actually quite heartbreaking about one lady said her husband actually ended up, you know, they, they, he, he denied the faith and now she's struggling as well because they went down the path of Hebrew roots and, and she became, they became so enamored by the law as law that they they kind of lost sight of Jesus and so I wrote that book as sort of a with a, with another two folks that I work with I wrote the book as a way to deal with the believers relationship to the law and I did that as without 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 starting in the New Testament in other words I, I can could show lots of verses in the New Testament uh about our relationship to the law but I didn't, I didn't feel like there was anything written that actually addressed our relationship to the law based on a thorough and careful reading of the Torah and its theology. So that's that book. Um, The ministry that I serve with now is primarily one that's online. And so, which is really interesting because we've had, you know, we have unlimited access to every Jewish home in Israel, something that, you know, we would never have before the internet. And so... Uh, We really have, we've seen an amazing move of God here in Israel, both, believe it or not, both among Jewish people and also among Arabs. And so we also do uh, videos in Arabic that specifically deal with the gospel uh, for Muslims. We actually have an uh, Arabic speaking media team as well. And we've seen some amazing things happening even among hardcore radical Muslims that come to faith. And so... um, so yes, we're 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 very open about our faith. We have lots of opportunities to share. Uh but the synagogue is, yep. you know, those days have long been gone. You can't walk into a synagogue and start pre- preaching Jesus for very long.
0: Gotcha. Right. Gotcha. Um now i, I f- had a friend who um I'm trying to remember what country he was from, but uh they, they told a story of where a man was evangelized to some Arabs and was able to see Jesus in the Quran, you know, even though, you know, the Quran is not authoritative, we don't believe the Quran, but they were able to kind of use that as a window. Is that something that y'all kind of do with that? Or is that something different?
1: So, yeah, so I'm actually not, because I don't speak Arabic, I speak Hebrew, I don't speak Arabic. And so I'm actually not on the the team that reaches Muslims. Um, I think that from what I understand, and the, the head of the team, Um, He's an amazing guy, very bold. I mean, incredibly bold. And, you know, from my conversations with him, I think that he less focuses on the Quran and and focuses more on Jesus and the gospel. Okay. Um, So, you know, uh, there's not much I can add to that. I just know that, uh, like I said, we've seen some, we've got some pretty amazing stories of Muslims that have come to faith and in crazy from crazy crazy backgrounds that that now love Jesus and incidentally by the way incidentally we've noticed this almost without exception that Muslims that uh, that come to faith that once hated the Jewish people uh, they come to meet Jesus and they start to love the Jewish people.
0: <laughs> Praise God! Praise God! Yeah, I um I did have the opportunity to witness to an older Muslim man in, um, he, he was in a retirement home in Wilmington, North Carolina. And it, it, it was interesting to me. They, they, I think, well, he, I won't say they, he viewed the, both the Torah and the Gospels as partially authoritative. right? So it was really interesting place to start with that topic. But that's That's a whole different podcast. Um, But uh, so for those, a lot of our listeners obviously did not grow up Jewish um, because, you know, we're in the Bible belt of America. Um, For those of us who started with the gospel, why why do we still need the Torah? Why do we need the Old Testament? Wow. I know that's a huge question.
1: Wow. I mean, this is going to be a long podcast, but, you know. So, you know, when you think about a joke, if I tell you, you know, have you ever tried to tell a joke to a five-year-old or a three-year-old and they don't get it? Yeah. Right? Now, but here's the crazy thing about telling a three- or a five-year-old a joke is that he understands all your vocabulary. He understands the grammar. He knows the difference between past, present, and future. He's understood every word you say, but he doesn't get the joke. And you say, well, why doesn't he get the joke? And he doesn't get the joke because jokes have a a series of signs that point to something outside themselves. There needs to be some reference to something outside the joke that activates the meaning of the joke. And without the outside, without the intertext that that joke hooks up to, you can understand every word and not understand the joke. And what I would say is that it's just – it's. How could you ever possibly understand the New Testament that assumes the authority of the of the Old Testament? All the arguments that are made in Acts for the for the for, for the identity of Jesus, almost without exception, other than on Morris Hill, where he's talking to Gentiles, almost without exception, the argumentation there is built on, 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 on the Old Testament. Um, you think about the ways in which the New Testament writers present Jesus. This whole notion in Ma- in, Mo- in Matthew of of Jesus as a as a as the prophet like Moses. Even the structure of the book reflects the pattern of the narrative of the Torah. Uh, he comes out of Egypt in chapter two. He goes through the waters of his baptism in chapter three. He goes into the wilderness to be tested for forty days and forty nights in chapter four. Chapter five, he goes up a mountain <laughs> with his disciples to give them. His new law, right? And so, uh, it, to me, the whole notion of of not having the, the the Old Testament just it 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 makes it makes the New Testament faith just about it, there's it, it doesn't it it makes it how would you say ununderstandable non-understandable <laughs> un, non uncomprehensible. So yeah. I mean, yeah. So, I I mean, I guess we'd start from there, right? I mean, the Gospels are sort of assuming that they're arguing to the readers that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one, according to the law, the prophets, and the writings.
0: Yeah. And, you know, a lot of um, Protestant evangelicals like to use the Roman road and, you know, take people through Romans to share the Gospel. And a large part of Romans is... Him seeing Jesus through the eyes of Moses. Him seeing Jesus through the eyes of this Old Testament figure and that. And I'm like, well, how do you, how do you understand this without <laughs> without the Old Testament? Yeah, that makes a makes a lot of sense to me.
1: So if um, you think about Romans, interestingly yeah. enough, and that's a great example. There's no other New Testament in terms of the Pauline epistles. Romans has the most quotes of the Old Testament of any of his epistles, and interestingly enough. At the opening of the book, he talks about that this gospel was announced through the prophets who spoke about his son. And then the book ends in chapter 16, I believe, 25, verse 25, with this mystery that was revealed, this gospel, according to the prophets, according to the scriptures. And so Paul's whole argumentation is a sustained argument from the Old Testament that his gospel is the true gospel. And that God had always intended Jews and Gentiles to be together in unity. I mean, that's that's his whole purpose of his letter, and he builds the whole argumentation on the Old Testament.
0: Yeah, we're huge fans of uh, unity here, so you guys should uh, definitely read Romans and see what he's talking about. Uh, maybe after getting a better understanding of the Torah and reading, see, uh, reading, reading Moses, seeing Jesus. Um, yeah, uh, I think TJ probably th- relates the most to what you're talking about. Um, his best friend is me, and I have super ADHD. So uh, most of his joke setups, I get distracted during, and then he gives a great punchline, and he's like, why why didn't you get it? And, yeah. There you have it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Our listeners have probably heard that happen a few times. Yeah.
2: Well, it's like a year and a half, maybe two years ago, I just would tell the joke and then explain why it's funny anyway, even if he listened the whole time. <laughs>
1: Well, so, I suspect yeah, that there's there's a chance that he may have a delayed laughter too. Like maybe in another year or two, it could happen that you know we yeah, say in Hebrew uh, that, uh, the con- that the the coin finally falls down into the slot, and then and then the joke will register.
2: Yeah, maybe yeah, one day. Yeah, that's my life. Uh, <laughs> Uh, So it's hard for a lot of people who started with Luke or Acts to get into the Old Testament. Uh, What specific challenges are there for those who started with the Hebrew Bible in getting into the New Testament?
1: Yeah. um, So, again, these are these are amazing, wonderful questions. And, you know, here in Israel, uh, the Hebrew Bible is part of our curriculum in the schools. People study the Hebrew Bible. Uh, my my kids and, you know, my children in school, in elementary school and in high school, they study the Hebrew Bible as part of their curriculum. And and so um, Israelis are familiar with the Hebrew Bible, much, much more so, say, than the American Jewish community. Israelis know the Bible. I mean, not, you know, they're not Bible scholars, but they know the Bible. And obviously they they travel around Israel. They know the sites. They know the stories. OK, but. Really, the Jewish understanding of the Hebrew Bible was primarily shaped about a thousand years ago by, the, by a, a famous rabbi by the name of Rashi. And Rashi actually lived uh, during the time of the First Crusades. Okay? He lived at a time when Jews were being terribly persecuted. In 1096, there was a mass murder of Jews in Germany. Um, It wasn't called Germany back then, but the area of Germany. And at the time, the Crusaders actually conquered the Holy Land, which for the Jewish people was a big deal, because the whole argument between the synagogue and the church was, who's the true Israel? And so now suddenly the Christians are ruling the Holy Land. And so it created a real crisis of faith for Jewish people, uh, who were also suffering terribly in Christian lands. And... And... Many times the Jewish people were also being uh, forcibly led to listen to um, sermons to try to prove to them that Jesus is the Messiah. And it sounds terrible, but that's how it was done. It was many times done by the sword. So Rashi needed needed to come up with a, a defense of the Jewish people. He needed to explain why the Jewish people, even though they were faithful to the law, in his estimation, were still suffering in exile. Why is it that the Christians had conquered the Holy Land? And why is it that these passages that look like Jesus in the Old Testament are not Jesus? And so he came up with a system of interpretation, and he interpreted the whole Hebrew Bible. And certain books took a a lot of his focus, seven in particular among them, you know, Isaiah, the book of Psalms, and his goal was to refute the Christian interpretation by pointing or highlighting certain textual features in the Hebrew Bible, and he would, in as simple a way as possible, he would, he would claim it is the literal meaning, but it was a meaning that use the details of the text to refute the Christian interpretation. Now, why did I give you this whole story? That is because that is the grid, that is the framework now with which Jewish people read the Hebrew Bible. It's through Rashi. And so the kids in school, they not only study the Hebrew Bible, they study Rashi. And so so the Jewish community is very insulated (laughs) to a certain extent, Uh, particularly the religious Jewish community, from actually looking in the Hebrew Bible and seeing the same thing you do. And so you'll look at a passage and you'll say, That's Jesus. And they'll look at the passage, you'll say, No, it's not, that's Israel. Isaiah 53, yeah. classic passage. You know, we can't help but see Jesus. They can't help but see Israel. It's yeah. Israel's a suffering servant. And and so I would say that, you know, this system of of interpretation. Uh, that hinders Jewish people from actually making the connection and actually seeing that these passages are messianic.
2: Hey guys, we just wanted to take a quick break to tell you a few ways that you can support the whole church podcast, your favorite church unity podcast.
0: Yes, yeah, so you can sign up for our newsletter, at our website or by emailing us at thewholechurch@gmail.com. gmail.com you can follow us on Facebook Instagram or Twitter you could share this episode on your own social media you could donate to us on Cash App with the tag that's in the show notes you could follow us on Patreon at patreon.com or the Whole Church Podcast you can subscribe to this show wherever great podcasts are found or you could rate us on Apple Podcasts or Podchasers
2: Especially that last one. It's a really great way for us to get recognition, not only from the community, but from people looking to find new good
0: podcasts. Yeah. So let's get back to the show then.
3: Yeah. Hmm.
0: Now, All right. just as a curious person, would you say that Israel in the Old Testament was kind of a um, foretelling of what Jesus' story was going to be? Or is that a completely different thing.
1: <laughs> um, so, okay. So it's actually a loaded question. It's a good question. And I know you oh, didn't mean well. it as a loaded question <laughs> at all. I didn't, I didn't take did. any, no, I, I don't even hear that there was any intent attempt <laughs> to be, but it is an important question. And, and I would say that, you know, let, let me take, let me, let me move the ball down to the goal line because a lot of people would see the parallel, say between Jesus and Israel in the New Testament, or Jesus and Israel and Matthew, and the conclusion then is that Jesus is the true Israel, right? In other words, Israel is the type, and Jesus is the, the, the fullness of that type, and now everybody that believes in Jesus is the true Israel. Now, I don't agree with that theology. I don't agree with that interpretation. That said, I understand where it's coming from. But I would actually argue that, like, for instance, the parallels between Jesus and Israel and Matthew— uh, i would say more specifically the parallels between jesus and moses but the point is is that i would argue that jesus is not the true israel he's the truest israelite in other words mm-hmm. uh, i i think you see this like the, the, the high priest in order to represent the people of israel he wore israel on his sleeves right on his on his uh shoulders and on his on his on his chest he represented israel perfectly king david when he defeated goliath he defeated goliath not as the true Israel, but as the truest Israelite. And Israel entered into that victory. And so I would say that this whole notion of Israel as a type, no, I would see that Israel is part of the redemptive plan of God, and that Jesus came to redeem Israel as the perfect Israelite, but he also came <laughs> to redeem the nations as well. And so that's, that's at least how I understand uh, that. And I know, and again, I, I know you didn't, I know there was no yeah. intent to catch me in anything, but it's a big, yeah, it no, is a big issue in biblical scholarship.
0: Yeah, it escaped me, the whole true Israel argument, because I guess I just don't think of that like that. Um, but yeah, so what you're saying sounds a lot more like uh, how people understand Adam represented all humanity. We don't mean that he was the true human, but yeah,
1: okay. Correct. That makes Rep- more sense to me. Representatives, exactly. That uh, Jesus is our perfect representative, and that's why – So, for instance, you know, in Matthew chapter four, the temptation narrative, I think it's a horrible way. I think it's a horrible sermon to preach. Matthew chapter four is how to defeat the devil. I think how to defeat the devil's uh, temptations. I think the point of that passage is not that that that's what we do, but that's actually what Jesus did. He is our perfect representative. He did what nobody else could do. Not Adam, not Israel. Not Israel. Not even Moses. And so he's our perfect representative.
0: Wow. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Uh-huh. So in a lot of Protestant circles, and I know this is <laughs> this is sort of a big question too. So uh, as a yes, no, I guess good work. Um, but a lot of the debates where we are at have to do with stuff like predestination, female ordination, you know, just th- those kind of things. Um, are the debates within Messianic Judaism or where you're at, are they similar debates or y'all just have completely different concerns you talk about?
1: Yeah. um, So, wow. It's such a, again, your, your questions are really good. Um, I guess it depends where, so, you know, in terms of work, I live in Israel. So when I speak about the Messianic community, I'm speaking about Israel. I, I, you know, I've, I lived in America for many years. I'm familiar with the Messianic community in the United States. I think they're dealing with different issues than we're dealing with here. Um, yeah. but I, I would say that, you know, believe it or not, some of the, some of the issues that, you know, still, uh, that, 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 that Jewish believers still wrestle with and that your church still wrestles with here, um, you know, the deity of Jesus, right. And in what sense is Jesus divine, the Trinity, how do we understand the Trinity as Jews? How do we understand the Trinity within the context of the Shema hero, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, um, the law. How do we understand our relationship to the law? What do we do with, you know, some of these commandments? Do we keep kosher? Do we not keep kosher? Do we have to keep kosher? As Jews, do we have a special calling, right? And so these are some of the issues that that I think are are going on here. Um, but of course we deal with, with with issues that I think other churches and other, you know, other Christians around the world are dealing with in terms of, you know, Arminianism, Calvinism, and free grace? You know, where do you, where do you fit in, in, you know, in that perspective? And we deal with those and we talk about those things as well. Um, you know, the whole okay. issue of, again, gender is a big issue here. And Israel has mm-hmm. the, the world's leading LGBTs. I think I've said that right. LGBTQTS, right? <laughs> Sorry if I said it wrong, but <laughs> all those letters. I mean, Israel has one of the, the leading communities, homosexual communities in the world. And so, and and I, I'm not saying that in pride, obviously, yeah. right? I mean, I love and I have a passion to see, you know, all people come to faith and have a real heart for that community and, and sharing the gospel with them. But what I'm saying is that, you know, it's such a big issue here that it, it obviously uh, creates all sorts of questions for us as a church.
0: Yeah, yeah. Right. and uh, we, we have a lot of interesting debates going on with how to witness to the LGBTQ stuff in America as well. I just, uh, so it sounds like uh, you guys have some, a lot of the same questions, but then also even extra questions that you're dealing with over there. It's, sure. That's uh yeah. Interesting.
1: Well, we're still in acts. I mean, the crazy thing is yeah. is that, you know, the church in Israel has grown exponentially, you know, at the, at the establishment of the state of Israel, I think that there were, I think I want to say there were like two Messianic Jewish families in all of Israel and oh, yeah. and now, and now we have that I know that that we're able to count roughly we're at about thirty thirty five thousand, but that that doesn't account for all the people that are under eighteen that have come to faith online who are not legally allowed to go to churches, and so hmm. the church is growing in leaps and bounds here. God's doing an amazing work here in Israel most people don't even realize that that you know. Things are really happening here in amazing ways.
3: Praise God.
2: Praise God. Uh, So a lot of Protestant churches in America that we have dealt with remain concerned with praying for Israel and sending funds to Israel. Uh, What are some of the best ways that we could help those living in Israel?
1: Yeah, so so the ministry that I I work for is is called One for Israel, okay? And I'm not I'm not asking for your money. That's not where I'm going with this. <laughs> um but what I want to say is this is that our motto is that uh Jesus is the best way to bless Israel. Mm. Right? I, I I think that listen, our greatest need in Israel is not peace and security. Um I don't think, you know, the biggest problem in Israel is not the Palestinians. And for the Palestinians, the biggest problem is not Israel, because if those things went away, they'd still have problems. OK, our, our biggest need is the gospel. And and uh, that I would say that praying for the salvation of Israel, that's Paul gives us that model in Romans chapter 10. I think um, one of the this is going to sound really strange. If you really want to see a revival among the Jewish people, pray for the Muslims, <laughs> Because you think about a people group that you could imagine uh and, and a revival among Muslims that suddenly they you know one day hated Israel now start to love the Jewish people. you talk about provoking Israel to jealousy right and so um I would say that you know praying for the salvation of 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 Israel, praying for the salvation of gaza for for you know for for the Palestinians for our neighbors Turkey Syria. Egypt, you know, Lebanon, I mean, that's that's the real burden, that's our biggest need. And so I would say that you support ministries that are sharing the gospel. I, I would not, you know, a lot of money goes into social issues here, a lot. Much more money goes into social issues and social needs from evangelical Christians than than the actual spiritual gospel. And in some of these ministries that people are supporting, they don't even realize that the, the so-called organizations that they're supporting are absolutely against jewish evangelism right and and so and so i would just simply say you know ministries that have a heart uh to reach the jewish people and there's some wonderful ministries here in israel i mean you know really wonderful outstanding ministries uh that are doing a wonderful job in bringing the gospel uh, to the jewish people
2: uh, would you say a Pretty much the same answer for supporting our Messianic Jewish brothers and sisters who aren't in Israel.
1: So, you know, when you say supporting uh, Messianic Jews outside of Israel, I'm not quite sure, you know, what that would mean. I would just simply say, I would say, you know, listen, I, I believe there's only one church, one baptism, one God, right? I'm, we, we We believe there's only one Lord, right? And so Jewish and Gentile believers are one in the faith wherever we are, uh, including in the United States. Um, that's not to say that, you know, I totally understand the need sometimes for congregations that are that are, you know, more culturally sensitive to the Jewish people. I think, you know, a Jewish person that's an unsaved that comes into a, you know, a church and sees a big cross that can easily be, you know, a, a symbol of salvation to a Christian for some Jewish people is a sign of persecution in in the medieval period. And so my, you know, but, but my point where I'm going with this is that, you know, I I think that Christians as a whole ought to have a love for the Jewish people. I just, I think, I think we need to have a love for everybody. That's clear to me, right? We should love, (laughs) we should love our enemies. That said um, I'm going to give you an, an, an analogy. Okay. That, to to try to help illustrate why I think that Christians ought to have a love for the Jewish people. So my wife is Chinese, Hong Kong, Chinese. Uh, You could imagine. I tell my wife, listen, I absolutely love you. You are my best friend. I cannot stand the Chinese. I hate their food. I hate their culture. Can't stand your family, but I really love you. And my wife would look at me and she'd say, Listen, you bought the whole package. I can't get out of my Chinese body. I can't, I can't undo my Chinese family. And since marrying my I love people, I mean, I really do. And I have a passion, I have a special love for the Arabs in particular because of our cultural context here and our geopolitical context here. But the thought of my best friend being Chinese and not loving her unsaved people or not having an interest in. The history of her people. And I would say that, you know, if you're a Christian, you can never deny the fact that your best friend is Jewish. And that ought to give you a burden for his unsaved family.
3: Mm. Right. Man, that's, I uh, would
2: say. That's a big answer. Yeah. As, yeah, as far as learning your heritage's history goes, if there was one culture I would give the past to ignore most of it to, it would be Chinese people because that's a whole lot of recorded history. That's just so much, so much recorded history. You know, it is
1: amazing. It is amazing
2: years. But,
1: you know, it's interesting about the Chinese, by the way, you didn't want to ask me about the Chinese culture. But (laughs) there's actually two known countries in world history with no persecution of the Jewish people. China and India are the only countries in the history of the world that had never had issues of anti-Semitism.
0: Wow. Crazy. That's, um, man, That's uh, that sounds like one of those things I'm going to start researching and going down a rabbit hole with. And luckily, I have most of my day to do that after this. Um,
1: Congratulations. Uh, this, is kind
0: of, uh, <laughs> this is a little off script, but um, I'm curious. So you mentioned the, the Book of Romans talks a lot about the unity of Gentiles and the Jewish people in the church. Did you have any particular verses in Romans that spoke to that issue that you really like? <laughs>
1: As far as the unity of Jews and Gentiles, well, listen. Yeah. I think that I think the whole book is heading in that direction, as I understand it. I think that yeah. uh, Genesis one sixteen is quite programmatic about the power of the gospel to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Um, and you know, I won't get into how I understand that phrase, but what I would simply say is that this this I think Paul is heading towards the issue of unity, and so chapter fourteen and fifteen he really really hits it. Uh, hard uh the the notion of trying to unite a very divided congregation, you know in chapter eleven, Paul addresses Gentile arrogance over unsaved israel and then mm-hmm. in um you know and then in chapter fourteen and in chapter fifteen of romans he he deals with the issues of cultural sensitivities, food issues days, weeks, years, but then he goes to chapter fifteen, and I really love. Uh, verses seven and following. And I'm going to read from the New American Standard. He says,
3: therefore,
1: "Therefore accept one another. And I think, you know, the context here is it has to be Jew and Gentile because that's what he's been arguing in the context of the book. He's not just simply talking about a general unity. He's talking about a very specific unity here. He says, therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the Father. So, you know, dear Gentile brother, Jesus didn't become a servant to the circumcision to abolish the promises given to the fathers, but to confirm them. If Jesus became a servant to the circumcision, why wouldn't you have a loving attitude towards them and serve them as well? And then he goes on, and for the Gentiles. (laughs) not just for the Jews, to glorify God for his mercy. And then he goes through this cantata where he actually quotes verses from every section of the Hebrew Bible, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And in each one of these quotations, you have Jews and Gentiles together for the glory of God. So he reads, uh, uh, therefore, verse 9, Therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. That's from uh second Sam, uh Second Samuel twenty-two fifty or Psalm eighteen, right? Uh then Romans fifteen ten. And again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. That's Deuteronomy thirty-two, forty-three. And again, praise the Lord all ye gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. Psalm one seventeen. And again, Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, and him the Gentiles shall hope. And so uh uh I see that what Paul is actually saying here is, listen, you to understand the program of God means that a Jew and a Gentile standing together, worshiping the God of Israel together. And so you need to get over your issues that are dividing you because Jesus has come to unite you. And so that's Mm. that I think that passage really, uh, really is a passage on unity that I absolutely love.
0: Oh, yeah. And that's um. Awesome stuff. Great place to end on. Um, I, I I won't attempt the words because I know I will absolutely butcher them. But um, it, it's interesting. You, you mentioned the law, the prophets, and the writings because the Hebrew word for that is how you end up coming up with the Tanakh. Or I can't. You said it well. I, know. I just, You did fine, I, 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 I tried. I tried, uh, and I, well. I know it's like the the Torah, and I I don't. I can't remember the other two well, but.
1: The uh. <laughs> The Law, the Prophets, and the Writings.
0: Yes, yes. (laughs) I knew what it was. I just – pronouncing it is a little difficult for me. (laughs) Oh, you did perfect. Thank you, thank you. So uh, we – and I know this is kind of running long, but we always like to ask our guests if you could just give a single tangible action, something practical people can go do. will help maintain the unity in the church, like the whole church. Israel included, obviously. <laughs> uh, if you give our listeners just a single action, what would it be?
1: Yeah, I've loved I love Jesus. I think that I think that when our theology makes a big deal of Jesus, u- unity follows. I think when when our theology we we minor on the majors and our theology becomes sidelined by things of lesser importance. I think it divides us. But I think that you know. Jesus, focus on Jesus. In fact, let me just give you a quick story. As we had several years ago, we brought together Jewish and Arab pastors um, to study the Bible in a one-year program, and it was the first time it had ever been done in Israel, and at Israel College of the Bible. And we were, we were really nervous about what was going to happen, but we decided right away that we were not going to be a reconciliation ministry. In other words, we weren't going to focus on, well, we're divided, let's get together, we decided that we were going to take at the heart, at the foundation. We didn't need to focus on reconciliation because Jesus already reconciled us. We, are, we already are one. And so we spent the year focusing on Jesus. And by the end of the year, one of the most amazing things happened. Um, we finished the year with a foot washing service where we washed one another's feet. And um, we didn't even need the buckets of really? water. We could have wet one another's. We were wetting, wetting one another's feet with our tears. So I would say Jesus. That's that's the key. Have a theology that's rich and, and and rich in Jesus, loving Jesus, and and you'll love people. You'll love people that are different than you. You'll help, You'll even love people that hate you.
0: Wow. Yeah. And um, see, I love that he said that because I, I never. I don't think I've ever told our listeners why I did this, but I actually, I changed that question. It used to say, how can we achieve unity? And now it says, how can we maintain unity? And that's from Ephesians four. And it's the exact same thought. You know, the Bible doesn't say you can have unity. It says, no, here's how you maintain what you already have. So that's a great point. Awesome. Awesome point that you made there. Really appreciate that. Yep.
2: And uh, you went ahead and threw in the answer to our next question, which was what would happen if we everyone started doing that? Uh, So we're going to get right into the outro stuff. Uh, I don't think we've ever had anyone include what they think would happen if they did that before. So uh, we're going to get on to our God moment segment. Uh, if you're new to the show, at the end of every episode, uh, we just share a moment from recently in our lives where we saw God, whether that be a blessing or a challenge or anything else. And I like to make Josh go first every time. Never fails.
0: That's um, That's true. I was trying to remember what my god moment was going to be. Oh, okay. I do remember because I've I've been saving this one because I was like, man, I I wanted to text TJ this because I was so excited about it. And then I I decided I'll keep it for a god moment. Um, So first off, I wasted $20 is is what my god moment really comes out to. Um, My new puppy, Copper, is a genius. And he figured out where the wasp like to hang out. And he's like, I'm going to chase these. I can get it. Uh, Which naturally ended with him being stung several times because he's just a puppy, and that's what they do. And um, my immediate reaction is, I have to protect my puppy. I'm going to go buy a wasp trap, because you can't get to the wasp nest where it is under the porch, and it's just super inconvenient. So I went to buy a wasp trap, and the next day, a riding spider put a big web right next to my wasp trap, and it has caught all of the wasp and ate it. And uh, now we don't have wasp, and my wasp trap was completely useless. And it's just a god moment in remembering that God will take care of things, you know, not, not necessarily every time, but you know, he could have let us just have that wasp problem, but instead God was like, I'm going to send you this spider. And it was a reminder that, Hey, I can just trust in God if I wanted to, and <laughs> yeah. I probably should have. Yeah. Yeah. Saved me $20. <laughs> right. So
2: yeah, I think uh, one of the coolest parts about growing up in South Carolina, I know not all of, neither of you guys can really relate to this and not all of our <laughs> audience can either, but I'm not sure how widespread the myth was, but I was told never to smile at a riding spider uh, because it'll <laughs> write your name in its web. Because uh, if and you haven't seen it, they they make little zigzags in their web when a part gets damaged. And everyone's like, that's your name. Better watch out.
0: I just wanted to share yeah, my that. wife's been telling me that the last couple of weeks since he's shown up. But yeah, I'm still here. <laughs> right. Uh, but
2: I do have a God moment. Uh, I am no longer in excruciating pain. Uh, my hand fell into a fryer <laughs> last week. And now it just hurts a normal amount. And it's, you know, hurting less most days. So
3: that's, thankful that's that my hand is healing.
2: Because, man, it was bad when it happened. Uh, but, yeah. Dr. Postel, uh, do you have a God moment for us?
1: I do. Um, several years ago, uh, one of the guys that came to faith in our ministry comes from a hardcore radical, um, Muslim background. I can't tell you where he's from, but, uh, he was tortured. We had to smuggle him out of where he was living. He ended up in another area, another safe place that wasn't so safe. And we've been trying to get him out of that place for the last several years, A couple days ago, about four or five days ago, or a week ago, it was about a week ago, he disappeared. We couldn't find him. And so our contacts there started looking for him and found him in a prison. they had caught him and they were going to send him back to his home of origin. And if they would have done that, they would, he would have been put to death. And, uh, so our church started to pray. He's a dear friend. We started to pray and other people, people were praying for him and, um, miraculously, uh, he was the the, the prison guard, kind of like the Philippian jailer, basically tore up the accusation against him. And we were able to secure him a visa to a safe country. And he just arrived a few days ago. And just today, I got a text message from him, uh, just telling me how much he appreciated the prayers of our church. And And so that was, I think, the highlight is to watch God uh, rescue him. And now having been separated from his family for the last, I think, four years, now there's finally the possibility that we can bring him uh, and his family together again. And so uh, that was probably the highlight of my week.
0: Great.
2: All right. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, If anyone was wondering. That's why we always let guests go last for our God moment. God moment's usually way better than ours. Uh, (laughs) Just usually works out that way. Uh, But if you enjoyed,
0: because we have to do this every week, we use all our good ones. (laughs) Yeah,
3: we have to do
2: like one to three of these a week. But uh, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with a friend or an enemy. A total stranger is also acceptable. Uh, all of that would help us a lot.
0: Yeah. And um, for those wondering, uh, where could they find more of your writings or uh, just check out your college and everything that you do, Dr. Postel?
1: Yeah. So if you just – people want to look us up on on uh, online, it's just oneforisrael.org, oneforisrael.org, O-N-E-F-O-R, right, one for Israel. Uh, you can also go to youtube and just look up one for israel and you'll find a lot of our videos some of them with subtitles and things that we do there um and there's information on our website about our bible college um you can go to amazon look me up seth postel there's some books there i've also uh written several articles for you know different books and the moody handbook of messianic prophecy contributed i think nine articles so yeah look forward to hearing some hearing hear from some folks
2: Right. Uh, so, some future guests we have on the show return guest Amy Watson of Wednesdays with Watson, uh, Alice Youngblood, vice president of the editorial for Barna Group, uh, Matt Chandler, pastor of Village Church and author of The Explicit Gospel. And at the end of season one, we will have Francis Chan on the show. Probably. Because season one does not end until Francis <laughs> Chan is on the show.
0: Yeah, he hasn't agreed yet, but eventually this season might end. Right. Thank you so
2: much for your time. Uh, Thank you, Dr. Postel, for your time and uh, stick around for the one extra thing we do for our patrons. And if you aren't one of our patrons, uh, go solve that issue for us real quick.